0: Welcome back to the podcast. I have the great privilege today of talking with author, teacher, luminary, Ruth King. Ruth is the author of a book that was sent to me by our shared publisher, Sounds True. The book is called Mindful of Race. I am shaking, nervous right now, which very rarely happens on my podcast. I'm usually very comfortable and very uh, confident, and right now, I'm nervous because I want to do a good job here. This is a woman who is teaching us that racism is a heart disease and it is curable. She is teaching us that this very generational and often unconscious conditioning to which we are a participant unknowingly is here to help us relate to distress with more compassion through mindfulness. You are, Ruth, a real hero to me. And in front of me, your book is folded, underlined, wet from the bath, and (laughs) a Bible to me right now. I want to say thank you first um, and foremost.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: Yes. um, The way in which I have had to examine my own conditioning as a Jewish white woman from Long Island, New York and see how how very ridiculously popular my initial thoughts were, which I don't really see what the difference is. I have always had friends of color. I have never really thought about race. All of that is a part of my privilege. I say this with total respect and total integrity that I did not know this until reading your book.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I am here to deepen and transform my own understanding and I am so grateful for your time and I don't put it on you that you have to teach me because I know that that's a part of the problem too. Hmm. I'm here to learn and grow. Um, What I'd like to say first is that to look at what's happening without raging, I think is one of the best lessons you've taught me through your book. And the mindfulness piece, and we're going to get into this in just a moment as a way to shift our attention from our viewpoint, whatever it is, it doesn't matter if we're talking about race or something that we think we did right and somebody else thinks we did it wrong, from our viewpoint to how the body is holding whatever it is. That is how you define mindfulness.
1: Yes, that's definitely... um, A way to have us put our finger on the pulse of the, you know, we we get to touch what the body is experiencing around this issue, which is crucial. I mean, it's a deeper truth than what our heads are sometimes aware of. Mm. And so this, this, this practice around mindfulness, stillness, turning inward, this inner work around our racial conditioning is actually... Turning into what? We're turning into the body. We're turning into the body's response to the stimuli, the stickiness, the, the terror, if you will. Uh, all of that stimuli that comes up when the word race or racism is, is even uttered out of someone's lips, let alone their thoughts. The body is in total relationship with what's happening in that moment. And when we turn our attention we rest our attention there, then we're actually developing an inner resource or a capacity to stay present with this activation or stimulation enough so that it can teach us how to be present, how to to reprogram our nervous system as we're deconstructing our minds around this issue. They go together most definitely.
0: For more than two uh, decades, you've been coaching leaders and teams cultivating cultures that are inclusive, creative, productive and respectful. Uh, you have a master's degree in clinical psychology. you were trained professionally in organizational development and diversity counseling. you're an insight meditation teacher, you're on the Teachers' Council at Spirit Rock Ho, and you teach retreats worldwide uh, nationwide, rather I can't wait to come and. See you teach. One of the, I would say, one of the most important points that you make in the book are how you break the book down, frankly. The part one, understanding habits of harm. Part two, you sort of get into the extraction, you call it heart surgery, <laughs> and that is how you define mindfulness. Um, the way in which we can sort of ameliorate, mend, sew it back up once the heart is fixed and then in part three you talk about recovery this is one of the most important things i found in this book cultivating a culture of care i am a person in recovery for five years from my addiction and i found the way that you laid the book out really helpful and there was no shame in my own misunderstanding in fact that was was my way in it was my portal in what what was yours? how did you come upon this work?
1: yeah it's such a it, it, it's it's almost like it wasn't a, a marked time um and and it's similar to recovery i'm I'm sure in the sense that you you all of a sudden something just comes glaringly into view and you know you have to kind of <laughs> kind of deal with that but mm. i I think it, because of my background it was very natural for me to design a training program that integrated racial awareness and mindfulness because that's what I was living mm-hmm. and you know i love corporate america thinking oh i'm just done with all this you know it's impossible for for this race work and all this diversity work to actually get traction and be transmuted in corporate settings because capitalism is such a big part of the schema, right? Right. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to leave and go pursue more spiritual endeavors and really kind of work on myself when I left corporate America back in 1992, only to walk into inside communities, uh, naive as I was, to recognize that it's the same, the same thing was happening inside the systems. So it was natural for me to, to develop a training program that would integrate these two worlds, mm. the spiritual world of mindfulness, if you will, and the harsh reality of racism that's, you know, in, in most systems, anytime we gather, we yeah. bring ourselves to that table. So the training, um, was where I began and it was also the place where I deepened my understanding because sometimes you know how it is. We train what we, we teach what we need to, (laughs) to learn. learn. So the book is kind of like the result of things that I discovered and deepened around through the training, but it's also this gap, um, that we see, and I think you probably see as well, between our good intentions and what's what we actually do in our lives. And I got really curious about how do we close that gap? Because I know a lot of good people. It was very important to me when I wrote this book that it was accessible because if, if people move to a place of shame because of what I'm saying, and they might do that anyway, but I was very intentional around offering something so that people could stay with me in the inquiry, and it just doesn't help if we find ourselves so shattered by the, the harsh reality of how we, how we're beginning to recognize how we think and feel. It doesn't help if we shut down around that. So my hope with the heart surgery, you know, and the recovery section was really to help people. Stay with me. Let's 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 keep doing this while we're holding hands because, right,
0: right. you
1: know, we can't just start, keep turning away from this. Right. Um, right. So 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 to me, that's a piece of the work around mindfulness, this capacity to to cultivate presence yes. so that we can stay with with whatever is here and know it for what it is and know we can bear our lives. We can carry ourselves through this. We can, we can do this, in other words. We mm-hmm. can look at our racial history and it's not going to kill us. Although, you know, we know that's not always the case for some people. Right. For most of us, we can bear witness to our experience and deconstruct or decolonize our mind enough to be able to have a wiser and more compassionate response to ourselves and to the communities that we live and influence.
0: Upon reading this first section, I was away with my kid uh, on a long trip, just the two of us. He's 13. It's time. You know, I, I have always taught him whatever I knew, but this was a real learning experience to dive into your book and your work. And what I came to understand, the whole idea around whiteness is that we actually need to wake up to the fact that we are a part of a group, a history, a narrative of deep pain, of a lack of integrity that goes so deep, so far back. And most of the white people that I know, we have historically seen ourselves as empowered individuals, as you teach in the book. We don't see ourselves as part of a group because we've never had to fight to be treated equitably. We've never had to rise up and figure out how to do some of the most mundane daily things because of the color of our skin. That's never been the case for most of us. As a Jew, I've had a little bit, but not a whole lot as a woman. But wow, the learning, the understanding that I taught him was to wake up to our whiteness is to understand that we've actually never had to fight to be treated equitably in, in day-to-day matters. And we need to make this a collective priority. If we don't, the people of color continue to suffer because we're not, we're blind.
1: Yeah. I think that um, when white people are not doing the work of whiteness, people of color are burdened with that, weight of responsibility. And the the weight of that responsibility gets shared as white people become more aware of their collective narrative, group, historic reality and how that actually lives present time. Mm. So it is true that I think the biggest, the most poignant point of the book is helping white people shift from The idea of being the good individual to also being a part of a racial group identity that has history, that has roots, that has impact. And it's also where privilege lives. Privilege is not so much a word that I use for individuals as much as it is a word that's really pointed to collective. And whiteness is a word of collective, it's not individual. And there's story there, there's information, there's history. And when white people wake up to that and recognize themselves in it and the dynamics that go with it, which is what I'm really spelling out, especially that dynamic of blindness, sameness and silence, which is what keeps privilege, you know, where it is that we don't see it. We don't we don't speak it. We don't you know, it's just not a part of our way of looking. That's been a big help. I think for white folks to, to, to just get that piece. That's a big, that's a big piece, understanding that we're part of group. We're part of a, a racial group identity. Yeah. That, that means something.
0: That's precisely what one of the biggest learnings for me was in this book. And to be able to pass that on to my kid mm-hmm. was a great gift. And we had one of the best conversations of our lives with, with regards to, I, I taught him about the SPLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center. I taught him about um, all the hate groups that are rife right now, particularly just growing and grow, so many of them growing and growing and growing. you You mentioned at the beginning of the book, but I actually get the SPLC mailings because I've donated to them, and wow, it's so daunting.
1: There's a chapter in the book that speaks directly to whiteness, what white folks need to do with privilege. I think it's entitled something like that. I'm thinking about you and your 13-year-old son and this intimate time you had. There's a there's a section in there that's um, called The Untold. It's a piece that I wrote out of a dream of what it would be like if white folks were talking to their children about race. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at that, but I think it's really powerful in the sense that it's an adult white person talking to a child who is fully owning the racial, collective, and historic narratives and having a tender conversation with their child about what they might need to be in store of as Mm -hmm. they move through the world as a white child. Now, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates talks about is talking in his book to his son about what it's like to walk in the world in a Black body. And this writing, I think, was really stimulated by what would it be like if white folks were talking to their children about what it's like to walk in a white body and what we might need to attune to. So so that's another area that I think, and what happens is people read that, and I've had white people say to me, well, I couldn't possibly say this to my kid, or I could never even imagine myself having a conversation like that with my kid where I'm owning slavery and owning, you know, history and owning my role in not seeing or what have you. And the question becomes, if it's difficult to have that conversation with your kid or some version of it, you can create your own, of course, why is that difficult? And see, when we bring this inquiry, this racial inquiry, like you've done, right into the heart of your family with people you love, and you start kind of working that thread and talking about it out loud and coming out of hiding and sharing the tenderness, you know, because you we love our kids, right? We want them to get it. We want to teach them. So I just think, when white people start talking to their children about race, that just begins to change the whole fabric and narrative around this conversation in our social realm.
0: I, I feel the change in my family. And
1: if we're not doing that, the question becomes what gets in the way of that happening. Right? Right. So that's a, that's a, that's right territory for uh, white people to really cultivate a deeper understanding of whiteness through coming out of hiding and how we talk about it to people that we love.
0: So this is on page 189 of Ruth's book. It was one of the ones that I bookmarked with one of my little watercolor paintings. (laughs) The quote that you started this chapter with is, Dear white people, no one is asking you to apologize for your ancestors. We are asking you to dismantle the system of oppression they built that you maintain and benefit from Mm -hmm. that was a quote from michael eric dyson the section on talking to your children specifically on page 230 which is talking to your children about tenderness and strength Mm -hmm. really touched me
1: yeah
0: the way that you speak to people you you must have recorded this or in some way remembered it but you recount conversation that you had with this woman, this Cuban woman, Claire, in one of your trainings and her concern for her 16 year old daughter, who I think if I remember correctly, had a, an eating disorder.
1: Correct. Yes.
0: And just to see how you spoke to this woman with so much tenderness and yet such firmness and such presence, really, it changed something cellularly in Mm. me and not two weeks later, I had to deal with a mm, kind of a moment of hatred of my own from somebody in my community, and I was able to withstand it differently because of you. Huh. Yeah. So thank you for that.
1: Uh huh. Yeah. And I think, in a way, I just want to just highlight this a little Please. bit because. Please. You know, what you just said is no small thing, because this is how it works. You know, we we get this information, and if it touches us deeply enough, it starts to influence what we see, how we see it, and how we respond to it. And that's the prayer, right? I mean, that's the hope around this, that we we we're not just reading something, but it actually begins to shift how we look at something. It holds us long enough so that we begin to see the subtle ways that what we've read or what we think about it just is actually alive in our own life. So I'm appreciating yeah. that discernment that you're speaking to, that this kind of connecting the dots, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I just think that's so important when we're looking at this work, that it lives on the page and off the page in our lives.
0: The six hindrances are where I want to go next. I'm really looking forward to talking about these. Um, the six hindrances in order one good individuals. We've kind of already touched on this where I see myself as a good person. I don't see myself as a racist. And yet I'm completely neglectful of my race's history of oppression of people of color Two, internalized oppression. Three stars and constellations, which really helped me. Also, we'll get into that shortly. Four, intent and impact. Five, cumulative impact, and six, which we've touched on just then, white privilege. Um, I'm not. I'm no longer afraid of that term. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really understand. It's not some. It's not some affront. If you're listening to this and you're white and you don't like that term, I promise you, it's not an affront. It's just the situation at hand. It's just what we have been handed down from generation after generation. This this history of oppression. It now belongs to us and our privileges that we're not being oppressed. Our privileges that we have choices as to how we look at things our privilege is that we get to see ourselves as empowered individuals and not just a part of a race, and we have to change that. Yeah. Internalized oppression, number two, I would like to go into this a little bit because a lot of what I read I really needed to read. I hadn't known what that would ever feel like. I hadn't really sunk into that sensation, and I want to understand it better.
1: Go ahead. Did you have a specific question around it?
0: just that it's you re, you say in the book it's an unconscious mental program that affects the psyche of people of color. Now, I don't I don't know what this is like. I could know a little bit because people used to make fun of me for for my religion or whatever and but I don't have a sense of this and when I close my eyes and I use my meditation practice to dive into what it must feel like to have a son with a brown body who has to worry about every single move that he makes out in the world it makes me weep. I don't have to think about that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I have friends who do, they they have to teach their child how to talk to a police officer in the event that a police officer comes over and stops him for being brown or black. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, this is important for, for us to hear. Well,
1: this piece is important um, because what happens is, is I'm looking in this piece at the psyche that gets developed over generations as a result of having to contort or reprogram your 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 own humanity to exist in a white dominant culture. So it's the, what it what I'm pointing to here with internalized oppression is this slow intravenous drops. That we're kind of swimming in this water and we're trying to figure out how to navigate so that we survive, so that we can eat, so that we have success, so that we can send our kids to school. But it's all within the context of whiteness or white supremacy. And when I say white supremacy, what I mean is that all of the power is held by white people in the social structures of government, usually of police forces of, I mean, the cultures are are dominantly white cultures, even if there are some people of color within them. The the, the shape you have to take is really a shape of whiteness in order to survive in them. And this is, uh, uh, this kind of programming that um, we're having to constantly maneuver and manage is what I mean by internalized oppression. And, in, and what happens in internalized oppression for people like me, I think a lot of people can identify because there's oppression around religion, there's oppression around gender, there's oppression around sexual orientation. It's the same thing that we're having to figure out how do we exist in this dominance Of whiteness. And so people do all kinds of things. You know, certain immigrants that came to this country, for example, changed their last name. You know, um, certain Mm -hmm. people uh, of color separated from their families in order to gain more success, or separation happened just because there was a class difference within the black family. You know, somebody went off to college and left and, you know, what have you. But often what happens around this internalized oppression is that we internalize whiteness and then we become, you know, what I refer to in the book that that's a, that's a common dynamic among people of color is that there's this racial pyramid of subordinated suffering. So the racial pyramid is we're all subordinated as a body of color as people of color, let's just say. We're, we're socially, we're a subordinated racial identities, a collection of them. But what happens when we internalize racism is that we operate within our own systems of color with the same idea of dominance and subordination that's in the, in, in the white culture. So we replicate the systems of oppression within our own bodies, hearts, and minds, and then that lives in our own communities, our own relational fields. So then there's the, especially around scarcity, because there's just a small amount dished out in these white unconscious systems, you know, the f- emphasis is so often on representation. So if we meet our quota and we've got one or two people of color here, we're good. We can check the box and move on. The culture hasn't changed, but we've got representation. So what happens in a, in, in a Black community, for example, is that then there's this sense of scarcity. There's only one or two spots available. So then there's this infighting that can happen around who's going to get it which automatically sets up a sense of hierarchy and separation within the body, within the Black community around that dynamic. These are unconscious processes, and I'm totally oversimplifying them. But that's some of how it works. We end up mimicking and having what, what's defined as success looks like whiteness. What, what's defined as, you know, um, what is it when you've made it? Um, what that criteria begins to look like is kind of a white model because that's so strongly defined. And then that creates a very painful dynamic within the body of color. Because whiteness is primarily structured, um, not knowingly always, but it's primarily structured at the individual level. See, we're still looking at individualness, individualism. When you look at people of color, the primary identity centers around groupness, not at the individual level. But in order to be successful in this environment, you have to become strongly individualized, which then creates a bit of a separation, interestingly, within the bodies of color, which have been oriented around group. So this is what I mean by internalized. It's, it's It's not like it's, it's just, we're, we're in this water. We got to figure out how we're going to survive in it. And what that means is that usually is that we have to become more white, even though we're not conscious of doing that or having to do that.
0: And as you say at the end of that chapter, white dominant culture never seems to forget that people of color are not white, even when people of color forget that they're not white.
1: That's right, because uh, often in, in, in whiteness and in white dominant cultures, it's more about representation than it is about culture change. See, when we're looking at diversity, when we're looking at dismantling racism, that means we are looking at an examination of whiteness. That means we are having to dive into the psyche, which has influenced the policies, the reward systems, you know, the norms, the hiring practices, all of that but most organizations are not really looking at that when it comes to diversity. They're just really looking at, see, we've got people here. We're, we're a diverse organization.
0: That leads to hindrance three stars and constellations. That's right. Which is where see one uh, individual event person uh, circumstance or see the whole entire context.
1: That's right. And this again is really, pointing to the stars as, as looking through the lens of individual, the constellation as looking through the lens of collective, where, you know, you look up in the sky, you see beautiful stars, or you look up in the sky and you can see the Big Dipper. You can see, you know, all these other constellations that have gathered together, the patterns, the tattoos, the, the different habits that happen towards a collective body of people. White people tend to look at the stars, at the individual incidents, at this shooting, these circumstances around this shooting, you know, why a person is guilty or not guilty and and what the consequences should be. People of color tend to look at the whole gestalt. They're looking at the pattern of how many people were shot, what color were their skin, what were the cultures that they belonged to, and so on and so forth. So this is an area where we miss each other a lot in our thinking and in our perception and our impulses towards judgment. You know, it just the list goes on and on. And and it's an it's an important input for white people to look at collective and also for people of color to look at individual. You know, because sometimes as people of color, we'll look at we we only look at the constellation, we don't see the 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 subtleties of an incident that might happen. You know, it gets flooded into a broader story. It's always the Big Dipper. You know, we don't see the Little Dipper that might be there, for example. And for white people, there's this, this kind of tendency towards looking at individual incidents without connecting the dots. And I think we could all open to the bigger sky when we're looking at situations so that we're not fixated on just our habits of mind but really looking at something a bit more broader and inclusive
0: which leads to hindrance number 4 which is intent and impact and one of the big learnings from here as i mentioned earlier in our talk where i mistakenly thought that i have to go and find someone of color to teach me and it's and it's i, I I wasn't even thinking of this consciously or cognitively, but it was as though I need to find somebody who can teach me and and they need to teach me because I don't know. Oh, I know. I hear that. And it's not the oppressed being expected to guarantee the safety and the comfort of someone like me is a huge issue in this conversation. I now see.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's important to talk about that. This, and, and and it's in the ignorance and innocence of not claiming white group identity. I mean, because the collective has not been vetted, then you can only resort to individual. You know, people of color need to teach me what I don't know. And, you know, of course, what the book is pointing to very strongly is how white people can teach other white people about whiteness. That's, that's what's missing. right. I mean,
0: that's my prayer here. Mm -hmm. You know, can I please just get a few more white people to understand that whiteness is something that we need to work on. We need to own, we need to understand, we need to stop forwarding and perpetuating what has been true for so many generations.
1: And that's one reason why the racial affinity group work is so strongly emphasized in the book. Uh, Because that is the structure uh, or the framework, if you will, that supports people of the same race coming together to examine their racial conditioning
0: and habits of mind and
1: habits of mind. It's just, it's just what needs to happen.
0: Those groups are really for small numbers in my understanding. Help me if I, if I'm misunderstanding, but my understanding is small numbers that Get together, facilitated properly, to transform the narratives that we hold in our bodies,
1: in our bodies, and especially in our minds. In our minds, yeah. And what we're looking at is uh, really understanding our racial conditioning, our racial roots. Not in what my grandmother did, but what, where, where, how, how have I come to know? this way of being a racial being or not being one how have I how how have I been conditioned to know that or not know that right. what has it cost me uh, what, you know so we're examining so many areas around you know where where was I silenced early on and what kept me from having a conversation about race that I may have wanted to have in my family and you know what would have kicked me out of my, membership as a, as a white woman if I had raised this issue with my mother or father, you know? These questions that can be asked that helps us contextualize our relationship with race and come out of hiding with, you know, the, what we do know we just haven't examined and shed some light on that and give it a bit of air and space so that we can really understand uh, what we're capable of of doing well and and then do that. But I think we have to aerate these stories and people of color don't need to hold that for white people. White people can do that for, for themselves. And people of color need to be in racial affinity groups to do some examination of, of our conditioning as well. I think everybody needs to be in a place where they can unpack and examine, not to feel bad, not to fix a problem outside and not to fix anything. Right. But to just have a place to aerate, to open, and to, and to, to be in relationship, if you will, mm. with what's coming through, what's moving through, yeah. uh, so that we can know, we can, we can bear it, and we can make different choices around it.
0: Well, I think also that these racial affinity groups are the way that you mitigate the fifth hindrance, which is the cumulative impact. We're tired. People of color yeah. are tired. I'm tired of not knowing what to say, I'm, t- and I'm not complaining, believe me, uh, but I, I feel this utter fatigue. Yeah. It's not just anger.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot to be said about the fatigue, but in a racial affinity group, you get to really examine what that's about, you know, because usually it's, you know, it can be this sinking feeling that we have. The, the fatigue is also um, a chronic fatigue. It's oftentimes a generational fatigue. You know, when 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 generations have been holding back on truth telling. You know, we're going to feel that in our body. We're going to, you know, that's the the weight of this issue is is generational. It's not just present day. So as we start to unpack it, of course we're going to be exhausted. Of course the body's kind of feel it. Um, yeah, and I find fatigue to be true among people. That, I mean, fatigue is true for all of us around this issue, but for different reasons. Right. You know, the fatigue for people of color, especially Black folks, is around just trying to get the attention of white folks around this issue for, for generations, you know. So there's a fatigue in that. And the fatigue with white folks is, I think, sometimes what you just talked about, this fatigue of not knowing um, what to say, a a fear of maybe not saying it right, a fear that I'm always going to get this wrong and then be nailed for it, a fear, you know, the fears uh, are, it's a different kind of weight and fatigue. I've worked with many groups of white people that have been hit so hard with what they haven't gotten right, that they're just all armored for it. It's like, okay, here's another hit. Oh, well, never going to get this right. Why Why bother? So there's that kind of yeah, fatigue yes. and not opening to the issue again. And of course, being able to lay on privilege, which helps that happen. Because you know we all have other things we would prefer to be doing. Right.
0: I also want to talk about uh, the prison industrial complex. I didn't quite understand the full gamut of the impact, the cumulative impact that that has had on our society and our people, I say people as a whole. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you speak a little bit to the way in which this entire complex profits from these black and brown bodies being warehoused as you said, uh, I think it was in the was page 60 mm-hmm. uh, in, these, in these prisons and how it affects us all.
1: Yeah, it's a painful um, you know structure, the structure of oppression, the structure. I mean, um, Michelle Alexander does such a brilliant job of speaking of the new Jim Crow when she speaks of this industrial complex, Angela Davis has been trying to raise awareness and impact around the use of, you know, this industrial complex as a modern day form of slavery. And um, the warehousing is, is, as some of you probably know, the targeting of dark bodies, especially brown and black bodies, Uh, Early on, and then um, what Naomi Klein refers to as disaster capitalists, where the capitalists of this country uh, predict and then build and structures and bet wages, if you will, and how many people they can fill in these complexes. The industrial, the prison industrial complexes, um, a large part of them are on the stock market right? So it becomes an investment vehicle. The children are targeted early on in schools, and the schools are inadequate. And then the, the people in these complexes, these prisons, their labor is used to build things, to create things that are sold in different places, and of course they're not being paid. And of course if they get released from prison, they can't vote, many of them, or they can't get jobs. And so the whole cycle repeats itself because, you know, there's all these other temptations to try to take care of yourself and your family.
0: And there's also the social perception of who they are now, criminal.
1: That's right. That's right. And they were perceived that way even before they got into the system. They're perceived that way even if they're not in the prison (laughs) industrial system. So this is a very uh, vicious cycle. It's not the only one that we we see, but these are systems that really benefit and capitalize and exploit bodies of color and, and and you know, basically, they get away with it. So, and then we can, if you add the stars and constellations template on top of this, where you can see individual acts that people may do, so therefore go to prison, okay, as opposed to seeing that the the majority of the people within the prison system are dark and, and brown bodies, then that's, again, the stars and the constellations. It can be justified as an act, perhaps, and, and, and that's I say that lightly, uh, but we're not looking at the, con- the constellation and who benefits and all of that. And so this is very much tied to our consciousness around race and the consciousness around criminalization of dark bodies of immigrants of indigenous people. There's a, there's a mindset that is is dominated in this culture that subordinates and therefore can criminalize uh, large bodies of people to this detriment. And, and there's profit from it. There was profit from you know Katrina where money was thrown at different companies to respond to the crisis. but the companies were actually, kind of erupted as, as targets of, of uh, these companies came up, a number of them, to address the crises. These companies didn't exist prior to the crises, but they were able to capitalize on it. And government funds went to certain people, wow. who were members of other people in the government. It, it's a hot mess, right? But this is what can happen if we're not looking at the constellation of harm. And, uh, whether it's Katrina or it's Flint, Michigan, or it's, uh, any of these, you know, just way too many places where we get to define, you know, white nationalism and white terrorism, domestic terrorism as mental health issues, as opposed to domestic terrorism. You know, there's a lot of ways we frame things for different people for different reasons. And these are things I think we become a bit more sensitive to as we wake up to our his history, our lineage, the soil of our race at the collective level, and begin to see some of the patterns. Uh, I just think it's hard to see otherwise. We we need to. There's a star, there's a, a planet, Chiron, I think, in the yeah. in the universe that I think I say this in the book that. That star has been there forever, but it took a collective consciousness in order for us to see it. And sometimes I feel like that's the work I'm trying to do. Can we mobilize a collective consciousness around our racial conditioning so that we can see what's actually happening right in front of us in a, in a, in a real way, in a human way, in a conscious way? We're really talking about how we shift our minds and hearts. Uh, that's my prayer in this work that I'm offering in the book
0: and that's just part one of the book when we get into part two and you bring us into you bring us into guided meditations and you start to really lay down the foundations for prioritizing kindness, no matter what
1: exactly
0: is discovered. I found the meditate the guided meditation on page ninety seven very useful. I have it in front of me now. I'm just wondering if you would be and you can totally say no if you would be interested in leading us through a short guided meditation.
1: Yeah. Are are you looking at um, you're looking at the kindness practice primarily? Right. Correct.
0: Correct. Yeah. Correct. Page ninety seven of the book for the listener.
1: Well, let's go there then. Let's. Let's let me invite you to just really center yourself in your seat, right, right here and now. And uh, if you can shift your attention inward, and sometimes we do that by closing our eyes and resting our awareness downward. And it might be helpful to bring awareness to the actual experience of settling right here in your seat. Settling is an experience to be known. So we're turning our attention into the body and feeling the body collect itself and settle. It's like a soda can that would be shaken up and then you sit it down. And it settles. I'm feeling a sense of inner balance and alignment in the body. Alignment with the shoulders and the hips. and allowing the awareness to move through the body like a gentle rain. Softening, relaxing, resting your awareness in the body. Really taking your time here to to know the experience of arriving in your seat, settling, and next raising your bringing your awareness to the movement of the breath and the body. The rise and fall of the breath. We're not thinking about the breath, we're experiencing the movement of the breath. Maybe it's in the belly or in the chest. Considering this movement of the breath, the inhale and the exhale has a rhythm that calms the body, calms the nervous system. And this gentling, allowing this stillness in the body and the movement of the breath to be known. taking a moment to appreciate this, these few moments that you've given yourself as an act of kindness. Kindness as revolution. This gentling towards ourselves. This homeopathic, a little a day is a lot, this getting still, this connecting with the body and the breath, which is always in the present moment. The deeper truth that wants to be known, this presence. And in this intentional pause, we can offer kindness to ourselves, we can make up our phrases. I'll offer a few of them. May I be safe from inner and outer harm. May I be safe. May I be happy and content with what life offers. Notice how you feel as you hear these phrases. Allow the phrases to be a balm. May I be healthy and strong. And may I live with ease. May whatever blocks my heart be dissolved. And may I know joy and freedom. Staying with the body and the breath. May I be at ease. And may I be free from animosity and hatred. May I know peace. May I be a good friend to myself. May I see the world with quiet eyes and respond with wisdom. So take a few seconds to think about phrases you might want to offer yourself. And consider as we move away from this and you want to work with this practice daily, consider it a daily bath that you get still with. Rest in. Be touched by. Consider this hygiene. Something you can do for yourself, that's free and free. So take a couple of deep breaths. We can come back to the present moment.
0: Thank you for that gift, Mm
1: -hmm. the daily bath. Yeah. I often say to people, I talk about the five, five, five rule in the book, five minutes a day, five days a week, five weeks in a row, and you have a, a good momentum going around a mindfulness practice, a beginner's practice.
0: That just felt really, really good. <laughs> really true. That's great. Thank you. In part uh, three, finally, we talk about the recovery as we referenced earlier, embracing race without racism Mm -hmm. and what that means. I want to leave this sort of open for reader because i think that all of us need to own this book and really look at it so that when and if you are called to create your own racial affinity groups you have a chapter you have page 165 Mm -hmm. in the book to help you create form a group what to do there's actually an entire um, sort of syllabus lesson plan if you will in that chapter on page 167 and then uh, questions and how to lead it. I feel very strongly that you've given us a great tool here. Invaluable. So thank you for that.
1: You're welcome. Yes. Beautiful.
0: Anything else to add for the listener?
1: No, I just, I I think what I like to um, point people to and that's important to keep in mind, and that this is this is kind of like a a marathon. It's not a sprint, you know. So usually I think people can find a way to rest into that reality when they think about this work as a life's work. That you're not trying to get something perfect or reach a certain destination. The last chapter in the book I, I is called Messy at Best that this work is just messy. I tell people you get 10 free free get out of jail cards a day because you're going to put your foot in your mouth. You're not going to get it right. You're going to have all these questions and insecurities. And that's literally necessary when we're doing this work, that we feel a sense of groundlessness and inadequacy, that we don't have the answers because that's, you know, and that even when we do get the answers, we feel a sense of um, insecurity around it, because we're we're learning something deep and necessary. And change is like this. Becoming aware is like this. So I, I don't want to promise people that we're going to get to this kumbaya and, you know, we're all great. I just want people to, to wake up and really own more of of where they are in the moment and what, what that's rooted in and how they can respond wisely in that moment. And, you know, if people can wake up to this area, it starts to influence other choices and other forms of activism, if you will. Or, or if you're in a leadership role, you start to see things differently and, and respond to things differently. But it starts with this place of doing this deep inner work as opposed to reacting to the crisis that presents itself in the moment, that we have this this undercurrent of love and introspection that supports us in understanding what we're rooted in and um, how it plays and, and what we can do in the face of so much racial harm and uh, wackiness in the world. So that's, that's what I would like to um, encourage for people that they see this as a life's work that that we all realize that we're doing the work of many generations that's why this topic is so hot because it's so unfinished <laughs> you know so when we start right. to, to pull that thread in the tapestry we're going to feel it we're going we're going to be touched by the information we don't get to bypass the literal field uh, of the nervous system and the emotional system and the body system and all these other things that are touched by this. So to expect that and these structures are intended to support us doing that deep dive and um, loving ourselves through it, both at the individual level, but also at the group level.
0: On page uh, 259, you say, don't be a stranger to moments of freedom that may be flirting with you
1: that's right
0: allow racial distress to teach you how to be more human
1: mm.
0: sit in the heat of it you say until your heart is both warmed and informed and then make a conscious choice to be a light yeah you end the book with a series of prayers do i have your permission to read them yes yes close
1: yes
0: may we understand and transform racial habits of harm may we remember that we belong to each other (sighs) may we grow in our awareness that what we do can help or hinder racial well-being may our thoughts and actions reflect the world we want to live in and leave behind. May we heal the seeds of separation inherited from our ancestors in gratitude for this life. May all beings without exception benefit from our growing awareness. May our thoughts and actions be ceremonies of well-being for all races may we honor being diverse racial beings among the human race and beyond race and finally may we meet the racial cries of the world with as much wisdom and grace as we can muster Oh, I just can't thank you enough. I learned so much from you. Thank you.
1: It's such a pleasure to be with you. And Mm -hmm. thank you so much for spreading the word.
0: Yes, you bet.
1: Appreciate that.
0: You bet. And thank you, Sounds True. I don't even know who at Sounds True sent me this book, but thank you so, so much. It is everything. And I look forward to uh, staying in touch, Ruth. I'm going to form one of my own groups or maybe several over the course of the next several years. And I will keep you closely posted as to what we find.
1: That's fantastic. Thank you so much. And the best to you. All the best. Thank you so much. Be well, dear one. Thank you.